One of the most common questions we hear about non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, is why. Why would someone intentionally hurt themselves? There's still a lot of myths and assumptions about the behavior, but if you've been listening to this podcast at all, you probably have a much better understanding about why people self-injure. If not, feel free to jump back to episode one, which is titled, Why Do People Self-Injure? What goes on at the neurobiological level that makes someone more vulnerable to self-injure? We know that the heritability of NSSI is around 40 to 60%, but that in no way means a parent is to blame for the behavior. As you'll hear, there are often shared risk factors that make NSSI more likely to occur in some individuals. So other than the psychology of self-injury pain, which I hope to discuss separately in a future episode, what biological risk factors are at play? What roles do the vagus nerve, cortisol levels, and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or HPA axis, have? To answer these questions about the neurobiology of NSSI in layman's terms, or what I hope could be considered layman's terms, I am joined today from the University of Bern in Switzerland by Dr. Michael Kess. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. I've had the opportunity to hear Dr. Kess speak a number of times at IISS, including in 2015 at the 10th annual IISS meeting, which was held in Heidelberg, Germany, and again at IISS in 2018 in Brussels, Belgium, where he gave the keynote address titled, From Biology to Treatment. As you'll hear, he's able to break down complex biological concepts into easy-to-understand terms when discussing NSSI. Dr. Kess is Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Psychotherapy at the University of Bern in Switzerland, as well as the Director of the University Hospital of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Psychotherapy in Bern. He also heads a research section at the Center for Psychosocial Medicine at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. He's an internationally renowned researcher in the field of adolescent risk-taking and self-harm behavior, as well as early detection and intervention of potentially underlying mental disorders such as borderline personality disorder and affective disorders. His research uses a variety of methods and includes a combination of epidemiological, clinical, and neurobiological studies to translate science into practice. If you're planning on attending IISS in Vienna, Austria in June of this year, and you have particular interest in the neurobiology of NSSI, you can attend the Biological Research in NSSI Special Interest Group meeting, which is chaired by Dr. Kess and focuses on improving understanding of the neurobiological mechanisms of NSSI and seeks to translate neurobiological insights into clinical application. Welcome, Dr. Kess. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. How did you become interested in researching self-injury to begin with? Well, it was actually quite early in my career when I started as an intern at an adolescent inpatient unit. It was a secured unit where teenagers with suicidal behavior and acute suicide risk were treated, and many of them also engaged in non-suicidal self-injury. At this time, it was very common to really have almost engaged into a fight with the patients around, you know, we were trying to find the razor blades and stop them from self-harming. And they were trying to 
you know, find ways to harm themselves on the inpatient unit. So I found it was an actually pretty frustrating and very, yeah, almost vicious circle. But in, in a way, it was also fascinating. So I always thought like, okay, why are these teenagers doing it? And why are we engaging in such an unhelpful dynamics with them? And basically out of these two questions, so interest in the phenomenon, but also seeing that we were the opposite of helpful to them. That was basically what made my interest in, in the topic. You also do clinical work, which I know we can get to maybe toward the end to be able to give listeners an opportunity to possibly participate in any of the ongoing studies that you have going on. But since we're talking about the neurobiology of self-injury as much as we can in layman's terms, thinking about starting somewhat basic, what do we know about the heritability of self-injury? In other words, are individuals whose parents have a history of self-injury also at increased risk for self-injury? Are there genetic factors at play here? Yeah, so the easy answer on your question whether children of parents with self-injury are at increased risk is probably yes. However, increased risk does not mean that there is a 100% risk. You know, it's just an increase of risk. And there are many, many other factors that contribute to the onset of self-injury. But yes, there is a genetic predisposition that is probably not very specific to self-harm, but more to underlying factors. For example, emotion regulation, different temperamental factors like impulsivity and these kind of things. It's very unlikely that there is genes coding for risk of self-injury. But we know that there are certain characteristics of individuals, as I said, the more impulsive ones, you know, those who may have more emotional instability. And some of this predisposition is probably coded in our genes. That's really interesting because, yeah, I think about the heritability in how some parents might feel partly responsible for their child's self-injury for a number of reasons, whether they don't feel like necessarily they've done the right thing as a parent. And I think we've all been there as parents, or if it's because if they have their own history, that that means their child is doomed to also engage in self-injury. But what you're saying is that's not the case. There are just some common risk factors like emotion dysregulation, impulsivity that could increase the likelihood of a child also self-injuring. Yeah. And then if we talk about intergenerational transmission of risk, we need to consider that there is obviously not only the genes, but there might also be things like parent-child interaction and attachment styles and other things contributing to that. However, I also suggest that feeling guilty for the parents also in this regard is not probably the most helpful and right thing to do because I learned during my time in Australia, I learned something that I find very important. My mentor there always said for the parents, they may be part of the problem, but they are definitely part of the solution. So um, I, you know, tend to more focus on the latter part of that sentence. I agree. Yeah, it's easy to blame, but they are part of the solution and part of this podcast wanting to be able to help them 
target those strengths in themselves as well as their children. And of course, not everyone who listens to the podcast is a parent or a parent of someone who self-injures, but I know a, a large audience is. And so, yeah, I think that they're a great resource, a great coping strategy to be utilized. That's probably also how the field of self-injury sees that. I have noticed in recent years this increased attention to the vagus nerve and its role in a lot of different things, including mental health. What do we know about the vagus nerve and its role in self-injury? I know research talks about vagally mediated heart rate variability and vagal tone, but what does all this mean in simple terms? Mm -hmm. So the vagus nerve is one major part of what we call the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is one of, well, let's say, two major stress response systems that we have. I think we will also get to the other one. Actually, the rapid response system for major stressors is the autonomic nervous system. And that has two components. One is the sympathetic nervous system. The other one is the parasympathetic nervous system. They are counterparts of each other. So the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for what we call the fight or flight reaction. You know, imagine you are in the jungle thousands of years ago and there is suddenly this big animal coming and that wants to eat you. Since we humans are also just animals in a way, you have two possibilities. You can either run or you can fight. You know, that's what we call fight or flight reaction. But for both, you need a lot of energy, you need an increased heart rate, you need muscle tension. You actually don't need that much brain, you know, so all your blood will go into your muscles, your heart rate will start uh, increasing, and you will be prepared for either running away or fighting. So this is the sympathetic nervous system. We all experience sympathetic reactions, you know, if we are frightened or if we have a very sudden stressor. The parasympathetic nervous system, as I said, is the counterpart. So this is actually responsible for calming us down, getting relaxed. If we, for example, sleep, we need to have parasympathetic activation. Also, if we eat and afterwards we process our food, this leads to a parasympathetic activation. That's why we are often get tired after a good meal. Yeah? And so, in a way, you can say the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for the arousal and the parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for relaxation. Hmm? So, the vagus nerve is a very large nerve that goes through the human body and that is the main nerve for the parasympathetic nervous system. So it goes in almost all organs, has a variety of connections with the brain, and the vagus nerve is responsible for relaxation, for calming down, for coping with stressful experiences. So we need to relax, we need to calm down, we need to be able to think. And here's where we come to the association between self-harm and malfunctioning or dysfunctioning of the vagus nerve. You know, we know that self-injury is related to what we call stress vulnerability. 
young people engaging in self-injury are more vulnerable to stress. They often get stressed more quickly. They have much higher arousal when they get stressed. They often have difficulties to relax and to get down to the resting level of stress again. So the clinical picture of how individuals with non-suicidal self-injury act, we actually see that they probably have a difficulty with hyperarousal and with relaxation again. And that's why we started a lot of investigations on the vagus nerve in relation to non-suicidal self-injury. The hypothesis was clear. Yes, individuals with non-suicidal self-injury are vulnerable to stress. And one of the biological stress response system that is responsible for calming down for relaxation might be attenuated or not active enough. So the hypothesis was that we have a reduced vagal activity in individuals with non-suicidal self-injury. And that has been shown in a variety of studies, although we need to say that probably, again, the lower functioning of the vagus nerve is not associated specifically to self-injury, but probably rather to general underlying factors such as emotion dysregulation, impulsivity, constructs that are in line with what we call borderline personality pathology. So um, it seems that the vagus nerve is not kind of specifically driving self-injury. It's more driving the underlying factors that make susceptible or vulnerable to self-injury. So individuals with low vagal tone might be more at risk for engaging in self-injury? Right. That's what I was trying to say, probably with a little bit uh, more words than you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I love that. I think that's really helpful. And I think about the sympathetic and parasympathetic in the way I differentiate those for people that may not be familiar with those terms is parasympathetic. The first four letters are P-A-R-A in Spanish. That means to stop. Sympathetic activates, parasympathetic stops or helps lower. Right. That's one way that I have always been able to remember it. A lot of clinicians talk about being able to self-stimulate their own vagus nerve. Is that possible? And what are some of these strategies? Which ones work? Which ones might not work as well? Oh, it's absolutely possible. Like the fantastic thing about the vagus nerve is that you can train it. You know, there are two different options to work with the vagus nerve. The one is in very short-term induction of vagus nerve function. And you can basically do that. Like, for example, if you know the dialectical behavior therapy skills, the stress tolerance skills, for example, very cold water, some of these skills, they actually very specifically activate strong activators of the vagus nerve. Immediate exposure to very cold water is a very strong stimulus of vagus nerve activation. You might have heard that sometimes even people have heart failure when they jump into a very cold water. The reason for that, why it's dangerous to jump into very cold water without cooling down before is that it's such a dramatic activation of the vagus nerve that your heart might stop beating. 
So we don't want to have that with our self-injuring adolescents, but there is ways to immediately and strongly activate your vagus nerve. The other way how to work with individuals related to the vagus nerve is that you can train your vagus nerve in generally functioning better. For example, physical activity, regular physical activity induces or improves vagus nerve functioning. Mindfulness-based exercises, for example, can improve. There's evidence that can substantially improve vagus or vagal functioning. So there's actually some pretty easy ways to improve the general functioning of your vagus nerve. And then there's also some ways to, on top, induce immediate strong reaction of the vagus nerve. Both of that is used in current therapeutic approaches for non-suicidal self-injury. I like that you bring up the cold water in dialectical behavior therapy. That's a skill that I often recommend, especially to the individuals that I treat who engage in self-injury. If we're talking about the vagus nerve in cold water, what would be the easiest way to activate it? Would it be splashing one's face? Would it be taking a cold shower, putting one's hands in a bowl full of ice water, or putting one's feet in a bowl full of ice water? Is there one strategy that is more effective or efficient at activating the vagus nerve? No, I actually think it depends a little bit on availability and the situation. You know, I think the colder and the more of your body goes into the cold water, the more effective probably. So having a very cold shower or jumping into a you know, very cold lake or something like that is, is probably really the most effective way. But it's not always available. You know, you can't just during a regular school day go and have a cold shower. What you can probably do is always, you know, maybe have cold water from the sink into your face already that gives some kind of vagus activation and then you know if you are at home you can use cool packs or you can use a bucket of ice water and get your hands in it or maybe even your head that's a little bit more efficient but as i said it depends a little bit on you know the situation well, I appreciate you discussing this in the vagus nerve because there's a lot of discussion about the biology or neurobiology of it. And this next question, what role does lower cortisol responses play in self-injury, especially when related to having a history of childhood adversity? And could you walk us through how the HPA axis works, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and how that works? Yeah, this is the second I, I was talking about these two major stress response systems of the body. You know, we have learned the autonomic nervous system is one. The other one is the one with the very complex name, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Different from the autonomic nervous system, it's not a neural or neuronal system. It's an endocrine system. That's why it's a bit slower. You can imagine that nerves they act within milliseconds because basically the signal is driven by goes with electricity hormones need to go through the blood to the different target organs 
which takes a little bit more time. So it does not act within milliseconds. It rather acts within seconds or sometimes even minutes. So it's the other major stress response system, but it is slower. The major end product of this whole axis, which I'm you know, not going into detail now, is cortisol. We all know cortisol from tablets or creams and different things. So it's also something that is used as a medication, mainly for its immunosuppressive functioning. But cortisol is the major stress hormone of the human body. The immune suppressive function actually makes sense because, again, going back to the jungle and the really nasty animal that wants to eat me, I can't afford now being sick, having fever, you know, because I, I need to focus on the stress situation. So basically cortisol also cuts all the body functions that are not needed at the moment. And for a very brief time, it's then an intelligent decision to not have a working immune system. It becomes a little bit of a problem if you have chronic stress, because then your immune system is down for a very long time and it makes you much more vulnerable, for example, for infections and other things like that. So that's why when we are chronically stressed, we tend to get more infections and more sick. But going back to the cortisol, in the long term, cortisol too high, too much cortisol is not helpful, as we have heard, because it's immunosuppressive and it makes a lot of different other things that we do not want in the long term. But in the short term, in a situation of severe stress, it's extremely helpful. That's why we have the second stress system. So it's extremely helpful and cortisol besides being immunosuppressive and also giving energy to the body and all of these things, helps us to regulate emotions in the presence of severe stress. So what we know from experimental research that people who have higher cortisol after a standardized stressor, for example, even when you substitute cortisol with a tablet before a standardized stressor, they will react with less adverse emotions to the stress. So what we now found out in individuals with non-suicidal self-injury, we remember they are usually vulnerable to stress, that these individuals not only show a stronger negative reaction to stress, but they really, and this is in line with the function of cortisol, they really show an attituded cortisol response to stress. So their system does not do what it usually should do. It does not release enough cortisol. And the consequence is that the regulation of stress is limited. So taking that together, individuals with non-suicidal self-injury probably have a limited functioning of the vagus nerve, giving them problems to relax. Yeah, giving them some tendency to hyperarousal, and they have limited secretion of cortisol in response to stress, which also is not helpful to regulating stress in terms of negative emotions. I think you have also asked the question on what does that have to do with their often adverse childhood experiences? Like the idea, and this is probably true for the vagus 
dysfunction as well as for the attenuated cortisol response. The current theory, and there's more and more evidence for that, is that under chronic stress conditions, and childhood adversity is biologically, it's nothing else than a chronic stressful condition. If it's neglect or abuse or just harsh parenting, or it may be, you know, it is a situation that puts chronic stress on a child or an adolescent. So what happens is that the stress response system tries to provide adequate stress response. In general, the vagus nerve tries to calm down, but the sympathetic system obviously is overactivated. And in terms of cortisol, we probably have a lot of supply of cortisol. So an overactivation of the stress response system. What then happens if that goes over a couple of months or even years, we probably have something that we call allostatic shift. So the whole system is overactivated, but the organism realizes that that is not helpful at all. You know, too much cortisol, too much stress hormones in the body, probably also some kind of tiredness of the system. And then it comes to a down-regulation of the system. So at one point, the HBA axis does not, does not have the capacity anymore and it does not have the sensitivity anymore to supply sufficient cortisol under circumstances of stress. If you think about the attenuation of the stress response, you really need to understand that a stress response system is a system that works over feedback mechanisms. So if the system is chronically activated and it needs to go down to a normal level, one of the most normal things that an organism does, it just reduces the sensitivity of the system so that it is not permanently overactivated anymore. And that's actually good that the organism does that, but it comes with a cost. The lower sensitivity of the stress response system then leads to insufficient response in the reaction to acute stressors. And that's probably what we see in most individuals with non-suicidal self-injury, because this is a group that has usually a history of chronic stress and probably related to that a dysfunction in the biological stress response. So in this way, self-injury might help activate that cortisol. That's actually very true. We have experimental results where we can clearly show that there is this attenuated cortisol response to stress, but self-injurers can generate a pretty strong cortisol release by physically harming themselves. So one of the ideas that we have on the whole biological functioning is really that because they can't provide sufficient biological stress response to the stressor, they harm themselves and the physical pain finally, because it's a different type of trigger and activator of the stress response system, seems to be able to induce an appropriate cortisol response, which can then also help regulate negative emotions and feeling of tension and stress. 
There was a study in 2016 that found that individuals who self-injured five or more times, adolescents in particular, demonstrated a greater cortisol awakening response, where they had sharp increases in cortisol in the first 30 to 45 minutes after waking up in the morning. What does that mean in terms of why that might be with a higher level of cortisol in the morning for those who self-injure more frequently? Yeah. Well, I guess that's an interesting finding because it also shows a little bit how complex these kind of systems in the end end are. I think it's very important that the cortisol awakening response is not the same measure as the cortisol response to a standardized or to a stressor. Actually, this finding fits very nicely into the model of chronic stress but not being able to provide adequate response to acute stressors. So what we believe is that self-injurers who usually are under chronic stress, you know, while they sleep. So the HPA axis reloads every time we sleep. Cortisol levels go down. And then once we wake up, they tend to start with an increase of cortisol. And that's what we call the cortisol awakening response. So we believe that At the beginning of the day, with this awakening reaction, you know, what we actually measure is this chronic tension that self-injurers often have. So they wake up and already they have a different level of arousal and stress than healthy individuals. And this means that basically, you know, once they wake up, their HPA axis and their cortisol levels go up. And at the beginning of the day, there's probably still sufficient cortisol that we can have this higher cortisol awakening response. But then once the day passes by and more and more stressors accumulate during the day, we will not receive the other sufficient responses of the HPA axis anymore. That might also fit to the very clear finding that self-injury mostly comes in the evening. If you look at the times when individuals tend to self-injure, it's 70 to 90% in the evening and early night hours. Very interesting. Very interesting. Can you talk about what goes on in the prefrontal cortex of the brain and limbic system among people who self-injure? I know Dr. Paul Plenner published an important study back in 2012 using fMRI to examine what goes on in the brain among adolescents who self-injure compared to those who don't self-injure by showing them negative, positive, and neutral pictures. Can you simplify the results of that study and others for our listeners? Yes. So uh, the question was funny, you know, what goes on in the frontal cortex? So I'm be probably very famous if I really knew what goes on in the frontal cortex. <laughs> uh, we don't exactly know, but there is, you know, maybe let's start also with a little bit of a simplified theory on what happens in the brain in individuals that are emotionally dysregulated and impulsive. Because I think we are also talking here, when we talk about brain mechanisms, we also talk about the brain as a potential factor of vulnerability rather than there is a specific self-injuring brain. And again, the biggest vulnerability factors for non-suicidal self-injury are emotion, dysregulation and impulsivity. So first of all, I need to have this very 
immediately occurring negative feelings that I don't have under control. And then usually because most self-injurers know that their behavior is not solving their problems, I often also have a bit lit of a lack of impulse control. You know, I actually know I shouldn't do it, but I do it anyway, because I just need to get some relief right now. So that's these two patterns. And why are individuals with non-suicidal self-injury dysregulated and impulsive? The theory that we have here is what we call the frontolimbic disbalance or imbalance. In lay terms, the limbic system, it's the deep and very old parts of the brain. In humans, this part is very similar, very close to equal to all other animals. There's some memory in it. There is the systems in it that generate feelings, that generate impulses. It's basically the part of the brain that in animals we would call makes their instinct. You know, animals have feelings. They can be scared. They can be happy. They can be sad. And feelings usually result in action impulses. If I'm scared, if an animal is scared, it runs away. If an animal is sad, it basically calms down and it goes into withdrawal. If an animal is happy, is happy, it goes usually into an approaching behavior. And this all happens in the limbic system. In a way, we humans are animals. You know, we have the same limbic system. So we have these feelings and these feelings result in action impulses. The big difference between an animal and a human being is the frontal brain. We have a very large frontal brain, and the frontal brain is the part of the brain that induces what we call top-down control. So if you have a dog and the dog gets anxious, and it probably has an activation also of the stress response systems, you can be sure that the dog will either run away or bite. If you become anxious and you feel you are in a threatening situation, you will have the same impulses to either fight or flight, but your frontal brain is bringing you into the position that you make a decision. You can control these impulses. You have a choice. You can decide not to run away and not to go into a fight because in the longer term, it does not have the best outcome. This is not what a dog can do. A dog cannot think about the longer-term outcome and control impulses, but human beings can. So nonetheless, some human beings can better than others, and this is because of frontolimbic disbalance. So in individuals with non-suicidal self-injury, there is an underactivation of the frontal brain in relation to overactivation of the limbic system. We don't know always exactly whether this is rather overactivated or this rather underactivated or whether, but you know, that's why we call it disbalance. So there's no fit. In the end, the frontal brain does not seem to be able to sufficiently control the limbic system. And here comes something that is very important. Self-injury commonly occurs with puberty, 
and has its onset and peak in adolescence and then often disappears towards adulthood. And that's not very surprising given that the adolescence, the period of adolescence, comes along with a natural frontolimbic disbalance. It's due to different timings in maturation. There's a phase of a couple of years where the limbic system is usually more active than the respective frontal brain. And this may be more pronounced in certain individuals who then during adolescence become more emotionally dysregulated and more impulsive. And that's exactly what we find in adolescents with non-suicidal self-injury. Though in studies, they often show an underactivation of the frontal brain. For example, like in Paul's studies in relation to emotional pictures and an overactivation of structures from the limbic system. We have also recently been able to replicate that with functional infrared spectroscopy in a large group of uh, individuals with non-suicidal self-injury where we find the same pattern that activation in the frontal brain is significantly reduced in self-injurers and the reduction also correlates with the level of severe emotion dysregulation and impulsivity. So even within the patient group, those who are more impulsive and more emotionally dysregulated show the lowest activity of the frontal brain. So when they're looking at these negative, positive, and neutral pictures, how do those who self-injure interpret those compared to those who don't self-injure? Yeah, so usually the negative emotional pictures are those that elicit stronger emotions in adolescents with non-suicidal self-injury. And that's what you can see in the reaction and activation of the limbic system. So as I said, this is the emotional generating system. You know, this is activated. If you really get emotional arousal, then usually what should happen is that your frontal brain says, well, look, it's just a picture. Calm down, nothing to worry about. Or maybe, yes, something to worry about, but it doesn't help if you freak out now. So that's, that's the part of the frontal brain. You can test these kind of things with pictures, with behavioral experiments, but the idea is always the same. So it's about eliciting negative emotions and then, you know, looking at how the brain responds to this. I know a lot of adults also engage in self-injury, but obviously prevalence rates are a little bit lower than in adolescents. And this makes sense based on what you're sharing with the attenuated vagus nerve stimulation as well as lower cortisol response and the frontal limbic system relationship and how that's all developing, especially in adolescents. So we do know people that are adults self-injure and may have begun when they were adolescents. Is there other research that you are doing related to neurobiology, the neurobiology of self-injury that maybe we haven't talked about today, other than pain? Because there is an episode I want to dedicate just on pain. Well, no, I think my research has mainly focused on, like my neurobiological research has mainly focused on neuroimaging and investigation of the stress response systems. There's probably also not so many more systems to investigate. You know, we have the central nervous system that we investigate with neuroimaging research. We have the two major stress response systems. We have the pain system. 
So this is basically most that we know about the neurobiology. And my other research is really about treatment and online interventions and response prediction and all these kind of things. But um, yeah. Are you still recruiting for your online intervention? Yes, we are. We are almost done. I think we'll close the trial in summer this year. Then we are at the expected sample size. And then we'll obviously need to finish the interventions and the follow-ups. And then we are going to analyze the trial. Yeah. If anyone listening would want to participate, I know it's, I mean, summer is just a couple months away, but if they were to want to jump into one of your online studies for the intervention, is there a link that I could put in our episode notes that could direct them there? Yeah, there is. I can send it to you. And so, yeah, the problem is it's in German. So that's the difficulty that probably most people that will, you know, see your podcast I guess they are probably English-speaking, most of them, and the intervention because it's a German-speaking intervention. True. I think, though, Germany, I want to say, is or it's one of the top five countries that listen to this podcast. So I think... Oh, yeah, okay. Yes, yeah, so I think we might... Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you, definitely. That, that's great. So what's next for you in the field of self-injury and possibly neurobiology even? Or is it more this yeah. clinical focus? Well, I, I mean, going back to the... Uh, like, my dream is really to one day more combine the neurobiological focus with my clinical focus. So at the moment, it still seems like pretty two areas of research that I have. And obviously, I'm thinking more and more how to combine these kind of things. And one of the things that we are doing at the moment is finding biomarkers in self-injury that are able to predict treatment response. So um, I think the idea of neurobiological research is, on the one hand, just to understand the nature of the disorder or the problem. I think that's absolutely important and meaningful. But when we come to clinical routine and to treatment, obviously, we hope that one day biomarkers will either give us mechanisms or targets for treatment, or at least inform us which treatment strategy to use for which person. We call it personalized medicine. That's what we hope to be able to achieve one day. And for example, we have finished our first large-scale longitudinal study investing all these biomarkers that I talked about in the longitudinal design before and after treatment. And we find, for example, pain sensitivity and pain tolerance as a predictor of treatment response, which is quite interesting because in the next step we might then think about how to differentiate treatment in the two groups so this is probably a little bit of the vision that that i have to turn into a more translational research that uses neurobiology to inform and support clinical decision making and clinical effectiveness that's super exciting. Yeah, I've always been interested in neurobiology itself and to see this applied to another interest of mine, obviously being self-injury. I think that's some exciting next steps and I can't wait to see what comes of it. And also, hopefully I'll be able to make it to IS here in Vienna and hear some of your presentations. I know you have a number of posters and presentations that you'll be giving. Yes, thank you. It's uh, Let's hope that we find some interesting and helpful, particularly helpful things in the future. 
Well, bringing everything together based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents of individuals who self-injure? Well, I really recommend that parents are aware of their children's stress vulnerability, which also means that they need to acknowledge that in an episode of high stress and high arousal, they will not be able to function appropriately and they need to also tune down their expectations. So I think the neurobiology and the neurobiological model at the moment is really helpful to inform parents that there is some limitations to their children that they can't do better, although they want to do better. And it also gives some psychoeducation in terms of, and they need to train. We can train the vagus nerve. We do not have sufficient data yet whether we can all tra also train the HPA axis, but we work on that. We actually know that also the frontolimbic disbalance has a tendency to, at, at least it has a tendency to become more stable the older the adolescents get, which is good news. So we can tell the parents, look, there are certain biological factors that will improve with age. So that's optimistic. There are some factors that you can work on, you can train. And there are some factors that might just be helpful to acknowledge, to not blame your child too much for how it is acting at the moment. So that's basically, in my opinion, how biology can inform parents when discussing about non-suicidal self-injury. Incredibly relevant. Thank you. And what would you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians and researchers? To be honest, more or less the same. You know, I really think that neurobiologically informed psychoeducation should be or is a gold standard that clinicians should use to inform their patients, but also the relatives about self-injury. And then obviously, it really also gives support to skills trainings, it really gives support to physical activity, to be honest, you know, and sleep. Like sometimes we forget the very basic mechanisms that can be very helpful for our patients to work with. And yeah, so I think the differences are not that big to the parents. It's really about drawing this few simple conclusions from biological research and include them into the treatment model because they are actually a surprisingly nice fit to the phenomenological and environmental models that we have. And lastly, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? Well, go to treatment. It's really helpful. First of all, you know, seek help. We have really a lot of data on poor help-seeking of adolescents with self-injury. Unfortunately, we have also a lot of data on poor treatment offers. It's not always their fault, poor help-seeking. Sometimes the healthcare systems are pretty poor in providing adequate care to adolescents with self-injury. But nonetheless, I really recommend don't blame yourself. Don't try to stay on your own with this. Go and get help. And I would probably also say it's not your fault. You know, don't blame yourself. And I think that neurobiology can give some evidence to that. 
That's powerful because oftentimes we just say it's not your fault, but a lot of people are saying, well, they do it. It's self-injury, so it's intentional. And yeah, yes, the final decision to cut oneself is obviously a behavior and it's a decision. But I think we need to acknowledge that all the psychological functions like impulse control, emotion regulation, you know, these kind of things. It's easy if you are an emotionally regulated person with functioning impulse control to blame somebody for his self-injury. I think it's we always need to acknowledge that someone who has these features, who is emotionally dysregulated, who has a lack of impulse control, for this person, stopping or reducing self-harm is a major fight and also a major achievement. And we should really see it like this. Yeah, the neurobiology that underlies so much is a much better explanatory way of viewing self-injury and less shaming or blaming. So I really appreciate that comment. Right. And there's only one thing that we need to also acknowledge. We are not 100% victims of our neurobiology Mm -hmm. because that's, again, important for treatment. You know, if we say, oh, we can't help you because you have all these biological features, That's also not the message we want to send. So I think the message that we want to send is there is good biological reasons for your behavior and we understand why you do it. But nonetheless, you have a choice and we can help you to make a different decision and we can also help you to change your neurobiology. What an optimistic note to end on. (laughs) That's a, a really great way to end our interview. Thank you, Dr. Kess, for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule, I I know, and being able to break this information down into what I hope is really simple, understandable terms. And I think for listeners, they'll really appreciate it as well. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Kess. It was fun, great work, and uh, fantastic that you do these kind of things. I see you in Vienna, right? I hope so. Cool. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.